Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 94, Stephen III. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So let's pick up with the story where we left it off last time. So if you remember from last time, there was really a lot of turbulence in Rome at this point. An armed gang headed by a guy named Toto had entered Rome during the declining health of Pope Paul I, and he sought to kind of impose his will and make sure that his candidate for papacy uh, got elected after Paul I died. And the only person caring for the dying Paul I in the midst of the chaos Toto inflicted on Rome was a Benedictine monk named Stephen. And this Stephen is the Pope that we're going to talk about today, but we've got a lot of backstory before we can get to how, in the middle of all this, he became the Pope. So let's go back to the beginning of his story. Stephen III was born in Sicily in the 720s AD, but he moved to Rome to enter the Benedictine monastery of San Crisogno in Trastevere, which had been founded by Pope Gregory III we talked about a couple weeks ago. After the death of Gregory III, Stephen was ordained a priest by St. Zachary, and he was made the cardinal priest of St. Cecilia in Trastevere. And I want to take a little pause here and note that I use the term cardinal priest, because up to this point, we haven't been using the terminology of cardinals in regards to the clergy of Rome, but right now, this is the moment when it starts to be coming into use in the church. A cardinal is just a senior member of the Roman clergy, either one of the seven deacons of Rome, one of the suffragan bishops of Rome, i.e. the bishops of the neighboring diocese of Rome, or one of the pastors of the Roman parishes. Now, when I say cardinal, it calls to mind red hats and electing the Pope and a lot of pomp and circumstance. But at this point, it wasn't quite like that. The red hat's not going to come into play for a couple centuries. But as we've seen already, the clergy do have a major role in the election of the Pope and one that is going to be more and more emphasized as outside agitators and politicians try to stir up the people to get their person elected. But we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. For now, when you think of cardinal, just think senior clergy in Rome. So anyway, Stephen was such a valuable and talented priest that he was brought into the papal administration by St. Zachary, and he was named the cubicularius of the papal household in addition to being the pastor of St. Cecilia's. And this was just a, a senior administrative official who had his hand in many areas of papal bureaucracy. He maintained this role for the next couple of papacies, which is a huge deal considering that oftentimes popes will change the clergy they appoint to different jobs because of various preferences and things like that. And he was very highly esteemed by each pope that he served. He was incredibly active diplomatically. He traveled with Stephen II to France and negotiated with the Emperor Pepin. And he worked amongst the Lombard princes that were vying for political control as well. In fact, you probably can assume that Stephen had his hand in almost all of the major diplomatic achievements of the papacy from the time of Stephen II to St. Paul I. And this brings us up to date. St. Paul I was dying and only Stephen is there caring for him. And while Stephen said the funeral mass for the dead pope, a group of clergy led by a papal official named Christopher assembled in the Basilica of Dodici Apostoli and swore to uphold the papal election procedures. Now we mentioned these papal election procedures that had been worked out with the Carolingians last episode. But right after this group of clergy did this, and they seem to have done that to kind of preempt Toto, Toto got a group of his followers together and they elected his brother Constantine the Pope. 
Now, Constantine was not a member of the clergy. He was a layman. And the problem with that is that the Pope is, of course, the Bishop of Rome. And there are a lot of steps between being a layperson and being a bishop. So Toto found a local bishop, George, the bishop of the Suburbican Diocese of Palestrina, and he ordered him to give Constantine the rite of tonsure. So tonsure is the ceremony that at the time made a man a cleric. George prostrated himself before Toto and Constantine and begged them, don't make me go through with this for the sake of the church. And they said, you're going to have to do it or you're going to have to die. And so George gave in. He gave Constantine the tonsure. The next day, he ordained him both a subdeacon and a deacon. And the following day, with two other bishops, also at the point of a sword, they ordained Constantine a bishop and marched him down to the Lateran Basilica, and they called him the Pope. Which, of course, makes Constantine II our next anti-Pope. Constantine II controlled the city of Rome for about a year. And during that time, Stephen managed to keep his head down and maintain his role as priest of St. Cecilia. Constantine II, meanwhile, was trying to have his forced election legitimated. He wrote immediately to Pepin, the emperor of the Franks, telling him that he was the new pope and asking for his friendship, and Pepin ignored him. And he likewise tried to stamp out his rivals in Rome. The most important was that official Christopher, who we met earlier, and his son, the papal treasurer named Sergius. Now, he stood up to Constantine II at first, but then he was forced to hide in St. Peter's Basilica for safety after it was clear that Constantine was going to put up with him. But even though he was in hiding, Sergius and Christopher, they put together a plan to get back at Constantine. They asked for permission to leave Rome for good and to enter a monastery outside the city, and they swore an oath before Constantine that this was their intention. But once outside of the city, they broke their oath, and they made a beeline for the Lombard Duke of Spoleto. And they asked him to write to the Lombard king, Desiderius, and to ask him to intervene, which was readily agreed upon. So Sergius marched back on Rome with a Lombard priest named Waldepert and Lombard troops, and he entered the city, camping on the Janiculum Hill. Now Toto came to meet him with his army, and the fighting was fierce, but just as things were looking bad for the Lombards, Toto was betrayed by some of his own men and killed, and the momentum shifted to the Lombard side. And so then they swept down into the city, and they found Constantine II. Constantine had been warned by his brother, and the two hid in the Lateran Palace until they were finally captured and thrown into prison. Now, meanwhile, Waldepert, the Lombard priest, thought this was a good, too good of an opportunity not to pass up, and he got together a group of Lombards supporting people and clergy, and he installed a monk named Philip as the Pope, who would be friendly to the Lombards. And they put him in the Lateran, and they threw a big feast, and Philip became the next antipope. So now we've got two antipopes in one episode. But when Christopher heard this, he, as he himself was coming into Rome, he demanded that Philip be removed by the Roman people so that a proper papal election could happen. So Philip was removed. He went pretty quietly back to his monastery. He realized, yeah, this probably wasn't the best decision. And Christopher convened a papal conclave on August 1st, 768. And there the clergy and people unanimously elected Stephen, the priest of Santa Cecilia, and marched off to get him and tell him he was elected Stephen III. Now, unfortunately, the violence in Rome didn't stop there. The people of Rome sought retribution on the anti-pope Constantine II. And apparently he was paraded around the city and mocked for a whole day, and then he had his papal garments torn from him, and he was blinded and left in the street. One of his counselors, a bishop, had his eyes and his tongue cut off by the mob, and so did Toto's brother. And Waldepert, the Lombard priest who put Philip on the papal throne, was also horribly attacked and blinded as well. It was so violent that he soon died afterwards. Stephen III's first act as pope was to call together a council to discuss the issues with the papal election, 
and he sent the aforementioned Sergius off to the Frankish emperor to ask him to send French bishops to attend the council. Pepin had just died, and his two sons, Carloman and Charles, were ruling in France and Germany, and they received the embassy, and they sent 13 bishops to Rome, along with copies of agreements regarding papal elections that their father had worked out with the popes. The council convened on April 12, 769, at the Lateran Basilica. Christopher was asked to go through the events of the past year and explain to everyone what happened, and then Constantine II himself, now blind, was asked to testify, and though he admitted what he had done was wrong, he also tried to defend himself. But the council condemned him, burned all his decrees, and declared his sacraments invalid except for baptism and confirmation. They then declared that only cardinal priests and cardinal deacons were eligible to elect the pope, one of the first uses of this term cardinal in history, and that the only the clergy could vote in the process. The people of Rome were then given the right to ratify the election by acclamation. So the clergy would choose someone and then the people of Rome could say yes or no. The last session of the council dealt with the issue of iconoclasm. You may have remembered from past episodes that the Eastern Emperor had declared that any images of saints or Jesus were illegal and heretical, and he imposed this strict iconoclasm throughout the emperor. Now, during the time Constantine II was ruling as the antipope, letters had come into Rome from other parts of the East, those no longer under Byzantine control, but were rather under the control of the Arabic Umayyad Caliphate. And these letters were pro-iconoduel. They were, they were pro-icons. And since the emperor couldn't force them to be iconoclasts, they proclaimed very loudly that iconoclasm was a heresy. And they wanted to make sure Rome knew before it made any decisions. The council in Rome declared the same, that iconoclasm was a heresy, and then adjourned. This all settled, Stephen III continued to work to secure the territory of the church which had been attacked by the Lombards. Now in the past this was achieved by writing to the Franks, but now with Pepin dead and his two sons both on the throne, this got a little tricky. Charles and Carloman, the two sons of Pepin, did not get along well. And the Pope worried that Charles would sign with the Lombards, even going so far as to marry a Lombard princess, in order to get help against his brother, and that this would then neglect the Pope, because the Lombards tended to be anti-papal. But these fears were relieved when Charles's mother, Bertranda, came to Rome to visit and reassure the Pope of the support of her son. But because of this, and because of Charles's perceived connection with the Lombards, Stephen III was then seen to be on the pro-Lombard side of things in Rome, and there were always these factions, pro-Lombard, pro-Byzantine, anti-Lombard, pro-papal. And this upset some of the people in Rome who helped get him elected, especially the papal official Christopher. Now, he seems to have favored the other Frankish brother, Carloman, and be against the Lombards. So Christopher, who's a very powerful guy, is anti-papal in this point. Added to the mix was a papal official named Paul Iafarta, who had been bribed by the Lombards to get the Pope onto their side and to turn against Christopher and his son Sergius. So there's all this drama being mixed up in Rome based off of these two brothers in France and the various factions in the city itself. So with all these swirling alliances, in 771, the Lombard king Desiderius decided that he should probably go to Rome to make sure everything was okay. And you know what? He should probably bring his army with him just to be safe. Now, at the same time, an emissary of Carloman thought it would be a good time for him to go to Rome as well and talk with Christopher, and that he should also bring some troops with him. And once the Franks were there, Christopher ordered that the gates of Rome should be locked and everyone put on high alert, 
Meanwhile, the Lombards arrived and camped out right next to St. Peter, which at that time was outside the city walls of Rome. And so Pope Stephen III went out to meet him, and that only added to the tension back in the city. Why is he going out and talking to this guy? The Lombards are the bad guys, aren't they? And when he returned to the Lateran after his meeting, he was ambushed inside the palace by Christopher's men, who hounded him about, what is he doing? What are you doing meeting with the Lombards? This is wrong. This is bad. Now, he managed to calm them down, but he decided, you know, if all these anti-papal or pro-Christopher forces are here in Rome, it might be best to get out of the city for a little bit, just so that that way I don't have to worry about my safety and about being forced to do anything. So what he did is he and his supporters escaped the city and barricaded themselves in St. Peter's Basilica. Now, it's unclear if he himself barricaded him in or if Desiderius imprisoned the Pope at St. Peter's because, you know, when you've got the Pope here with you and you just happen to lock him up, then he's probably more likely to do what you want him to do. A standoff ensued and Stephen demanded that Christopher surrender Rome and resign his post. After a couple of tense days, some of Christopher's allies started switching sides. So Christopher and his son Sergius made their way to St. Peter's to surrender. They were captured by the Lombard troops and brought to the Pope, who was very merciful to them, and ordered that they be sent to a monastery in Rome. But the Lombard supporters discovered where they were, and contrary to the Pope's wishes, they blinded them, killing Christopher while imprisoning Sergius. And by the end of this, Pope Stephen III was firmly on Charles's side in the dispute between the Frankish kings. The sad event, however, didn't strengthen the Pope's position with the Lombards at all, who still refused to give up the territory they had taken. Desiderius responded to the Pope when he requested what it was his due by saying, Be content that I removed Christopher and Sergius, who are ruling you, out of your way and ask not for rights. Besides, if I do not continue to help you, great trouble will befall you, for Carloman, king of the Franks, is the friend of Christopher and Sergius and will be wishful to come to Rome and seize you. So he's saying... Look at it, dude. I've got, I'm the only one who's going to take care of you. You, your followers, blinded some of the closest friends of Carloman the king. And now if I don't protect you, then who will? So he thinks he's got Stephen in his pocket. So the Lombards were growing in power and the Pope seems to have been put more under their control, partly because of this paid Lombard support, supporter, Paul Iafarta, who was growing in influence and power in the papal household. In fact, as Stephen began to fall ill, Paul Iafarta began eliminating his rivals in Rome, exiling some, imprisoning others, and going so far as to take Sergius out of his prison and having him strangled. At least that's what we think happened. At the time, Sergius' fate seems to have been a mystery. But right as you think you know what's going to happen, everything changed. The momentum had been going towards the Lombards, towards this corrupt Paul Iafarta who was gaining power, but at the last minute, Charles broke his alliance with the Lombards in late 771. Carloman died of natural causes in December of 771. Apparently, the natural causes were a really bloody nose by which he, he, he died. Other people have suggested that perhaps this was a cover and that actually it was Charles who killed him. And Stephen III died after a very tumultuous papacy on January 24, 772. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, and he was succeeded by Pope Adrian I, who we'll talk about next time. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, and God bless you.